Today is different for me than many other days because it's been a, it's been a, a long week and I feel tired. <laughs> so if I talk a little slower than usual today, I talk a little simpler, you'll know why. Also in that regard, today is different because I'm wearing my tallit in a different fashion. Did anybody notice that? <laughs> There's a reason for this too. You have to understand, sometimes I like to baby myself. Like if, I'm, if it's been a long week and I'm kind of tired, then on Shabbat I like to baby myself. I usually like get a blanket and I wrap up in the blanket and I just sit there and be really nice and cozy, right? So I have my tallit like this because it's a little cozier. So if you see me just kind of like cozying up in it while I'm talking, <laughs> you'll know why. Something I love about our little synagogue, shall we call it, is how we're family. And we can just be real, you know? I mean, even the way we sit, the way we do our music, everything. So I, I like that. And that's why I feel comfortable sharing that with you guys. <laughs> so let's look at this parasha together. Uh, there's, uh, there's some great depths in this parasha. There are some fascinating things on a literal level. There are some... There's some breathtaking prophetic elements that point to the future. And the symbolism of Messiah in here also, of course, is quite profound. Um, in the Jewish hermeneutic, the Jewish way of interpreting scripture, there are four main levels. And this was something that was around in Messiah's time and in the time of the authors of the New Testament. You see it in the way they write. Uh, the primary level that we read scripture on is the literal level, right? We just read it and we take it at face value. There's a historic value there. There are literal events that happen. There are physical actions that God calls us to engage in, etc. In Hebrew we call it Peshad. The next level is called, it's kind of like the elusive level. Uh, it's alluding to some deeper teachings in the text. You'll, you'll notice maybe there's a phrase used here and a phrase used there. And they're somehow connected. And when you begin, and you begin to realize, it's like an X marks the spot on a treasure map. It's pointing to something deeper. An example would be, this week we read a lot about the Pesach lamb. Later we'll read about how Yeshua is called the Pesach, the Passover lamb. That would be an example of one of those hints. It's called Ramez in Hebrew. And it says, there's something deeper here that I want to teach you. And that takes us to the third level. That's often called like the Drosh level. If you're familiar with the Hebrew term Midrosh, that's where we go deep in the Word and we delve into it together and we share things as the Holy Spirit gives us revelation. And, uh, and as we bring our insights together, they form this, uh, this greater understanding. That's called Midrash. And uh, the, this, the shorter term here for this level of hermeneutic in, in the Jewish uh, interpretation is called Drosh. And in a parasha like this, it's really tempting to go right to the drosh, right to the deep insights, right to the cool things, how the Passover lamb is about Messiah. But we've got to stop and just look at this on a, on a face value level. There's a powerful historic incident that happened here, something that has resonated down through the corridors of history. I mean, never in all of history has a God stepped onto the world scene in such a dramatic way and proved himself real in the eyes of the nations. I mean, if the planet in Moses' time was wired like it is today with uh, the different uh, forms of media, this thing would be the talk of every coffee break and every lunch hour and every working man's situation. Like, God made himself famous here. 
Most people maybe didn't know who this Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, was. But by the end of this parsha, everybody knew who he was. I'm sure that the accounts of the Exodus were recounted around 10,000 campfires as travelers met each other and exchanged information and caught each other up on the news. This was big stuff. And this is also a fascinating parsha because the ones prior to this, in some regards, have been setting the stage. They've been laying the groundwork. Uh, you know, I mean, the whole world collapses with Noah. Um, sin, of course, enters before that with Adam. Things are a mess. Uh, beginning in Abraham's generation, Yahweh begins to set out to redeem humanity. He, he introduces himself to Abraham. He makes friends with the guy. Um, he gets involved with Abraham's descendants, with the covenant. And this is all heading somewhere. When we get to the generation of the Exodus, things look like they're hopeless. You know, the people of Israel are enslaved in Egypt. They're supposed to have a God, but he's just not coming through. And this is where the action really begins. Uh, this is where things really begin gearing up. And it's an exciting parish in that regard. This is also the parish where things go from more of a storyline narrative to God starts to give his people instructions for living. He starts to give them new social customs. He starts, to, he starts to give them a godly culture, a culture that points to him and ultimately is going to point to his Messiah. That's what really starts getting phased in on this parasha. And uh, that's the, that's the thing, those are the things I really want to key in on first. Um, we've been talking about this word commandment. And uh, can anyone tell me the Hebrew for it? Do you remember? Mitzvah. The singular is mitzvah, plural is mitzvot. So we're if we're talking about a commandment from God, we're talking about a mitzvah. If we're talking about commandments, a series of them, then we're talking about mitzvot. All right? And this is the part where God starts to give his people mitzvot, commandments. And we've been talking about, in previous weeks about how the word for mitzvah is also the word for a connection. It's the word for neck in Hebrew. The neck connects the head and the body. Therefore, when God gives his people a commandment, the, the, the thought behind it is when we do stuff that God says to do, it's a way of connecting with him. It's a way of connecting our physical, mundane, everyday lives with the divine, with the spiritual. It gets us, it gets us keyed in with him. And, you know, uh, as a, an observant person, for instance, I wear tzitzit. I wear tassels on a daily basis. These things don't have any inherent spiritual value. They don't automatically give me a connection with God, of course. But what they do is they remind me of Him. They remind me of who He is. They remind me of His call to be holy to Him. They remind me of... The blue in them reminds me of how I've experienced the power of the Holy Spirit in my life. And I've encountered Messiah. Stuff like that, right? It's like connection points. And uh, we also learned, I think it was two parshas ago, that God gave Moses and Aaron a charge. He gave them a mission to accomplish. And the root word there for charge or mission is the word for commandment. So we're going to look at some of the commandments that God gives the people of Israel in this week's parsha, and we're going to learn about our mission as a people. We're going to learn about how we can connect with Him on a deeper level and with His Messiah. Now, you know, it's tempting. It is so tempting to just look at this parsha and be like, wow, look at all the cool prophetic elements of the future. Look at all the stuff about how the Passover lamb points to Yeshua. But we're not going to go there yet. We're just going to talk about basic commandments that God gave his people and see what we can learn about them. And we, we, of course, you know, we, we're, we, I just want to put in a preface. When we talk about God's instructions for living, when we talk about the mitzvot, we do not do this stuff to be okay with God or to get right with him. 
We are only okay with God and we only get right with Him through accepting what Yeshua has done for us. He shed His blood so that we could be forgiven. He brought us into a new covenant through His blood that He shed and through His resurrection. And He has infused us with the power of His Holy Spirit and spiritual righteousness through that atonement, through that new covenant. So we're not talking about doing this stuff to, be, to, to get right with God. We're not talking about doing anything from the Bible, including the Torah, to be saved. We're talking about doing this stuff because we've met the living God, because we've heard His call, because we're seeing how this stuff applies to us today because, it, because Yeshua modeled it for us and He said it's forever. So I just want to put that disclaimer in. May we never think that we can get right with God through our actions. That is not correct. He, he makes us right with Him, and then right living is the response to that. Um, that that's basic, but you know, I, uh, I wanna, wanted to make sure we're clear on that. Okay, Yeshua said in Matthew chapter 5 that He did not come to do away with the Torah. He came to fulfill it. Unfortunately, some, sometimes our definition of fulfill means to do away with. So that we read that as Him saying, Guys, don't think that I came to do away with the, the Torah, the law. I didn't come to do away with it. I came to do away with it. That's not what he said. What that means is he came to fulfill it. He fulfills prophetic elements of it. He's going to fulfill future prophetic elements in the future. But he also came to fill it full of meaning for us. The Passover story is awesome. It is inspiring. It inspires us to worship the God who is so real and who acts on behalf of his people. But when we see how Yeshua fulfills the story on yet a greater level as the Passover lamb inspires worship in our hearts. I, I believe that he's also called us to fulfill the word in the same way as he did. He modeled an example. Uh, the reason I think that is because right after Yeshua's words about not even thinking that he came to do away with the Torah, he started talking about the mitzvot, about God's commandments. And if we want to be true to the context of this passage, then we have to come to the grips with the fact that he was talking about some of the stuff in the Old Testament, some of the commandments in the Torah. Matthew chapter 5, verse 19. Yeah, starting in 17, but in 19 specifically he says, Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same, he is going to be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now this is cool because Messiah wants you to be great. God wants you to be great for Him. He wants you to be a great person in the kingdom. And He kind of tells us how to get there. And it's interesting how He talks about it on a very practical level. It starts with reading the Word, seeing what God has to say on a practical level, His commandments, and then doing them. Even the little ones that seem silly at first glance. They're not silly. There's a commandment in the Torah about birds' nests. That's, that's actually traditionally in the Jewish world called the least of the commandments. But if you come across a bird's nest, what do you do? There's a principle behind there. God cares about animals. He cares about taking care of the environment. He cares about conserving natural resources, okay? So you can't just be like, there's a commandment in the Torah about bird's nests? Doesn't God have anything better to talk about? Well, there's deeper stuff here, right? And that's why Yeshua says, if you want to be great in the kingdom, don't take your theological scissors and cut the first four-fifths of your Bible out. Don't just write it off as not applicable because you're Gentile. You're grafted into Israel. This is for all of us. If you want to be great in the kingdom, take the whole thing seriously. See what you can implement. 
Okay, here's the, here's the thing. Like, I'm passionate about discipleship. It's at the core of what I think about and what I live for. The easy part of discipleship is to do what we've done so far. You know, we get together, we, we read, we get up in the morning and we, we read the Word. That's a little harder sometimes because you're tired. Um, <laughs> it's, it's easy to talk about the Word. It's easy to do this stuff. The challenging part of discipleship, the hard part, is actually doing what he said. It's implementing God's commandments into your regular behavior, your daily lifestyle. That's where things get challenging. And I don't know, maybe that's why Yeshua talked about hypocrisy as much as he did. Hypocrisy just means play-acting. It means pretending, right? It means saying one thing and doing another. And God's really been dealing with areas in my heart in the last year where I'm a hypocrite. So just for the record, I'm a hypocrite, okay? <laughs> and he's dealing with me in, in little areas, and it's, it's awesome. So, uh, that, you know, so we have the option when we come to the Word and we read something or we hear something where we do it, or the only other option is to become a hypocrite. So that's uh, why we're going to look at some of this stuff today. There are... Oh, yeah, this is cool. Okay, Exodus chapter... Let's, let's jump right into the actual parish now. Exodus chapter 13, verse 9 is where we're going to start here. Exodus 13, verse 9. This is Yahweh. This is God talking. Uh, something is going to serve as a sign to you on your hand and as a reminder on your forehead. Why? So that the law, the Torah of Yahweh, the Lord, may be in your mouth. For with a powerful hand, Yahweh brought you out of Egypt. So uh, he's talking here about the festival of unleavened bread. Cleaning leaven out of your house for seven days, eating unleavened bread. And he says there's a reason for this. It's to get you talking about him. It's so that his teaching will, will be in your mouth. And it's going to be a sign on your hand. It's going to be a reminder on your forehead. Uh, then there are a couple of really, there's a really cool section right after that about redeeming your firstborn. And he concludes that passage also in Exodus 13, 16 by saying, This too will serve as a sign on your hand and as phylacteries, as totaphod in the Hebrew, on your forehead. For with a powerful hand, Yahweh brought us out of Egypt. Isn't this interesting? Usually uh, when we're talk, we talk about marks or signs on the hand, the right hand and the forehead, what do we think of? Which book of the Bible? Revelation, of course. It says, you know, the mark of the beast is something that everybody on planet Earth who doesn't worship the one true God will end up taking on their right hand or on their forehead. This is interesting because this concept in Revelation isn't new. This is Satan's counterfeit of something because Satan can only counterfeit the true. What we're discovering here is the true. So I'm giving you like kind of a deep insight in the book of Revelation here. This sets the context for the book of Revelation. Specifically, chapter 13, God is talking about the festival of unleavened bread, which is a memorial of the historical exodus. He's uh, talking about redeeming your firstborn son. There's a really cool ceremony that Jewish people do to redeem their firstborn children. And uh, I'll share that with you in a bit. But he's saying, these practices that I'm giving you as a nation are to be signs on your hand and reminders between your eyes. Why? Verse 9. So that the Torah of Yahweh, the law of the Lord, may be in your mouth. So there's the practical purpose. God's commandments, they get us thinking about Him. They get us talking about Him. And they get our kids asking questions too. And sometimes they get the world around us thinking we're weird. But that's a good place to start because when you're different, people begin to wonder why and they start to ask questions. And sometimes you get a chance to talk about God. 
I like that. Okay, let's talk about like Passover itself. Celebrating Passover, unleavened bread. This is kind of fascinating because I know that God doesn't have a stutter. But if you didn't know better, you'd think he does in this passage. Because there are a couple of phrases that he keeps repeating over and over. And it's either he, like he forgot that he already said that, or he's really trying to drive a point home. Maybe he's like, you know what, there's a danger that these people are going to think otherwise in the future. So I'd better repeat this over and over and over to make sure they know I'm serious, and to make sure they don't forget it. Let's look at a couple of those passages together. It's in uh, chapter 12, verse 14 is the first one. Exodus 12, verse 14. Rabbi says, This day, referring to the Passover meal, will be a memorial to you, and you shall celebrate it as a festival to Yahweh. That sounds pretty good. Sounds pretty joyous so far. Doesn't sound like legalism or bondage to me. Celebrating festivals to Him throughout your generations, you are to celebrate it as a law forever. Hmm. So how long does God say the Passover thing is supposed to be done by His people? Yeah. Permanent ordinance, perpetual law. There are different ways you could phrase that. The Hebrew there forever is olam. What does olam mean? It means the universe. The space-time continuum is how the conservative rabbi in Saskatoon would render that. In other words, as long as the physical dimensions of existence are there, then this is also important. And it's still there too. Also, it says throughout your generations. As far as I know, the people of Israel are still around. They still have generations. So, you know, maybe this is important. Let's look at another couple of verses. Chapter 12, verse 17. Uh, also, celebrate the, or uh, observe the festival of unleavened bread. For on this very day, I brought your armies out of the land of Egypt. Therefore, observe this day throughout your generations as a law forever. Didn't he already say that? Okay, this time he's talking about unleavened bread instead of the Passover meal. Let's see what else he has to say. Chapter 12, verse 24. Observe this event as a law for you and your children temporarily. Until Yeshua comes. Until you don't really feel like it anymore. I need a bigger buzz than that. Show me down, you guys. Come on. No, it says, Observe this event as a law for you and your children forever. Okay, let's read the next one. This is interesting. This is number four. Chapter 12, verse 42. <laughs> it is a night, referring to the Passover meal, to be observed for Yahweh for having brought them out from the land of Egypt. This night is for Yahweh to be observed by some of the sons of Israel. I need, I, I need to hear a buzzer here if I say that. What does it say? All the sons of Israel throughout their generations. Let me ask you, how many people here are part of the commonwealth of Israel according to Paul's teaching by faith? All of us. How many of our children of Abraham through faith? That, that is true. How many of us have been grafted in through faith in the Messiah? All of us. That's correct. Maybe this applies to us then. Could it be? Let's move on to the last verse. Chapter 13, verse 10. It says, Therefore, you shall keep this law at its appointed time from year to year. <laughs> Actually, this is a different phrase here. It's like, miyamim yamima. And it means from days and days to days and days. 
They translate that here as from year to year, but it means basically like just don't stop. Just you know you've always done it and you're always going to do it. <laughs> That's the idea behind the, the Hebrew there. And it's notable too that he just he doesn't say just do it anytime you want to. Uh, we learned a couple of weeks ago that God is a God of appointed times, that he sets definite times in his schedule when he wants to meet with us, when he invites us out on dates with him, shall we say. And he expects us to come and meet with him when he wants to. And uh, this is an example of that. Okay, now, here's another, here's another interesting thing. If you had a little child, and you gave your child something, and you said, okay, now, I want you to hold on to this really tightly. Don't lose it. Don't let it go. I want you to hold on to it. Why would you tell the child that? Because it's important. Maybe because the child would, was in danger of leaving it somewhere or forgetting it or losing it. Therefore, you're just reinforcing in the child's mind. Eh? It's interesting how God does this with regards to Passover and with regards to a lot of his commandments. Uh, there's this word in the New American Standard Bible, observe. I don't like it very much. I don't think it's the best translation. It's, it's uh, an attempt at translating the Hebrew word shamar. But the Hebrew word shamar means to guard. If I was Colin's executive protection, his personal bodyguard, I would be shamaring him. I'm not observing him, I'm guarding him from danger. I'm protecting him from attack. And that's the word that God says we are to act in, in capacity of with, regard, with relation to his commandments. Why would he say that with regards to his commandments? Why are we supposed to guard them? Why are we to keep them? Well, because, why would God tell us that? Because we're like the kids, right? Because they're important to him, and because we're in danger of forgetting stuff. We're in danger of someone coming and trying to take it away from us. And it's like, no. If you're going to come and try and take this away, you have to come through me. Right? That's, that's the idea behind it. And uh, we, we see an example of this, for instance, in uh, chapter 12, verse 17. Chapter 12, verse 17, Yahweh says, Observe the festival of unleavened bread. But it actually doesn't really say that. It says, guard the festival of unleavened bread. So, you know, when you're giving a child something and you're saying, hold on to this, don't, don't leave it somewhere, don't forget it, that's what the Father is saying to us with regards to the biblical festivals. Specifically with regards to celebrating unleavened bread, which is actually a lot of fun. Here's something else interesting. Yeshua's commandment, do this in remembrance of me. We all remember that, don't we? They're precious words to our hearts. He said, this is, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. This is a memorial. Those are precious words to our hearts. But sometimes we don't realize that Yeshua was talking about this parasha. He was talking about a Passover meal. The bread that he took wasn't just any old chunk of bread. And it certainly wasn't leavened bread. It was unleavened Passover matzah. The cup that he took wasn't just a cup that he poured, you know, with no previous context. It was the cup of the Passover. He was saying, eat this, Passover, this unleavened bread from Passover in remembrance of me. He was saying, drink this cup of the Passover. It was specifically the third of the four cups. When we read Luke's Gospel, we learn this. That he was saying, do this in remembrance of me. That's another reason why this specific parsha is precious to us as disciples of Yeshua. And we see in 
one of these verses here, it says, to do this is a memorial. Chapter 12, verse 14, it says, this day will be a memorial to you. It's the same word that Yeshua used when he said, do this in remembrance of me. It's to be a memorial. So for me, anyways, I'm reading through this. I just see this beautiful connection between the Passover and the memorial aspect of it and doing the Passover in remembrance of our Master and the new covenant that he brought us into. Okay. I love, like we already talked about, how this is for everybody. It's not just for physical Jews. It's not just for genetic Israelites. This is for all of God's people. Why? Because it's a God thing. Because it's about Messiah. And we're about Messiah. We're talking about how our, the name of our congregation, Crown of Messiah, in Hebrew is a Teret Mashiach. And it also means we're all about Messiah. Our lives revolve around Him. So uh, this is for all of us. We're going to look briefly at the, the big ten things that our loving Heavenly Father said to do with regards to Passover. And, like, this is cool. God gives us a whole week out of every year, to, you know, unleavened bread, to read the Passover story, to really go deep in it, to actually celebrate it on a physical level. So, you know, we're not going to go into too much detail here. I'm going to do a teaching on Passover before we actually celebrate Passover. So this is just like a sneak preview, okay? Uh, number one, uh, God talks about actually sacrificing the lamb and there is no temple standing, so this does not apply to us. We do not sacrifice lambs for Passover. In fact, if somebody wants to take a lamb and go, like, kill it in their backyard for Passover, that is a sin. Because Deuteronomy chapter 16 verses 5 to 7 says, don't do the Passover anywhere except for the temple in Jerusalem. Alright? So none of us are going to be doing animal sacrifices in our backyards. <laughs> and I don't think any of us were planning to anyway. But Ezekiel chapter 45 verse 21 says that God's people will be doing the Passover sacrifice again in Jerusalem. Uh, Ezekiel chapters 40 to 48 describe the thousand years when Messiah is back, reigning from Jerusalem. It talks about some of the stuff we'll be doing. I love the descriptions in there. One of the things we're going to be doing is Passover. Are we going to be doing it because Yeshua's sacrifice wasn't enough? Because Yeshua wasn't the ultimate Passover lamb? Of course not. In, in the Ezekiel description, we're going to be doing this stuff like the Passover lambs will be sacrificed as a graphic picture of Messiah's atonement. It will be a reminder that Yeshua is our ultimate Passover lamb. A memorial. Also, it talks about, you know, males have to be circumcised to do the Passover thing. Um, this doesn't apply either because when we do a Passover meal, we're not doing a literal sacrifice. And the whole circumcision thing only applies when you're doing a literal sacrifice. However, in Ezekiel chapter 45, no, 44 verse 9, it does talk about how in the future nobody's going to be going into God's temple in the millennial reign, the thousand-year rule of Messiah, unless they're circumcised firstly in their hearts and also physically. I thought that was interesting in Ezekiel chapter 44 verse 9. It says, no one will enter my temple who isn't circumcised in their heart and in flesh. So I guess maybe they go hand in hand in the future. Um, chapter 13, verse 8, this is number 2, says, tell the Passover story. The uh, telling of the story in Hebrew is called the Haggadah. And this verse opens with the Haggadah. And you tell the story. That's the number two thing we do. Let's count them on our fingers together, okay? Everybody get your number two finger in action here. Number three finger in action. 
Chapter 12, verse 8, eat bitter herbs and unleavened bread for the Passover meal. This is fun. We like to grind up horseradish, really fresh horseradish with lots of kick, and we have like big spoonfuls until we're almost getting knocked off our chair. All right? this, is, this is good stuff. Number four, in chapter 12, verse 11, it says to eat the Passover meal with your hiking boots on, with your backpacks ready to go, with a full tank of fuel in your vehicle, and with your passport in your pocket. <laughs> Okay, it doesn't exactly say that. It says to gird up your loins and have your hiking staff in hand. But I mean, like, you have to realize, like, girding up your loins, it means, like, you're cinching up your belt. And, you know, guys in biblical times, they wear these big dress things, and it's hard to run in a dress thing. So they would, like, gird it up or whatever. I don't know. That doesn't sound very appealing to me. I don't necessarily want to see a bunch of biblical guys with their legs showing. But they would gird it up, and then they'd be able to run at the top of their might, right? And so that's the idea. It's like, uh, get ready to go. Get ready to just walk out of that place and not look back. Be mobilized. And I have to admit, this is one that I've never done before. But I'm planning to do this year. I want to, just to really get in the mindset of the original Passover. Like, I want to actually sit down and eat the Passover meal with, like, my backpack packed. With my passport in my pocket. Just to get in the mindset and live it out. You know? So, uh, it's going to be fun. Number five, chapter 12, verse 11, it says, Eat the Passover meal fast. Like, eat the thing in a hurry. <laughs> I've never done that either. I've never sat there and eat, ate the Passover meal as fast as possible. How many of you have done like a traditional Seder before? Okay, if you have, you know that you recline during the Seder. You have a massive feast. It goes on and on. I remember finishing at 2 o'clock in like in the morning one time our Passover meal. We'd just eat, we'd pray and talk about the things of God and eat some more and drink the next cup and then eat some more and then drink the next cup. And I mean, it's an awesome thing. But I think I want to do one part of my seders in the future where I eat something really fast. Maybe not wolfing the whole thing down, but just be like, okay, for the next two minutes, I'm going to eat this thing like I'm planning to leave here, leave Egypt in the next five minutes. Right, I've got to get as much food in me as I can. I think that would be fun. Just bring kids here sandwiches. We've got to go. Right, right. That kind of idea. Okay. Number six, it says in chapter 12, verse 14, this day will be a memorial to you. The point is, don't only remember the historical exodus, remember Yeshua. He is our Passover lamb. Number seven, you can activate your number seven finger. Wave it around a bit. Chapter 12, verse 16, it says, have a holy assembly. That means, like, have a spiritual get-together, right? On the first and the last days of unleavened bread. That's the 15th day and the 21st days of the first month, right? It would be like the equivalent on our calendar of January 15th and January 21st, but we're not doing this on the Roman calendar. We're doing it on the biblical calendar, which means we'll be having the first month in the springtime, and it's going to be fun. Um, in uh, chapter 13, verse 6, it also specifically says, uh, have a festival to Yahweh on the last day of unleavened bread. That is the 21st day of the first month. I'm, I know I'm going through these references pretty fast. I'm not reading them all and I'm not giving you enough time to, so forgive me. Uh, we're recording this. We'll post it on the, our website so you can go back and like hit the pause button on me. <clears throat> it's kind of hard to pause me in real life because I can be a blur. But uh, you can pause me on, on, the, on the internet if you want to go back to this. Number eight, <clears throat> it says uh, correlatively, in relation to number seven, uh, don't work on the first and the last days of unleavened bread. Take the day off. That's the 15th and the 21st days of the first month. Why? Because you can't go have a holy convocation and work like the same day. It just doesn't work, right? You have to do one or the other. Isn't it cool? God's such a great boss. He's like, you know what? I just want you to take the day off. Come spend time with me. 
Isn't that awesome? I mean, who wouldn't want to do that? That's not bondage or legalism. That's freedom. That's having a God who loves us. Yeah, and uh, then there's, there's an interesting clause, actually, in chapter 13, verse 6. It says that for the festival Sabbaths, like the first and last day of unleavened bread, you take the day off work, you get together, and it also says, yeah, and also, like, you know, you're, you can get your food ready for that day. That's really nice of God, because sometimes those days will fall on a Friday or a Sunday, and if you're a lady who prepares for the Sabbath and for your household by, you know, getting your cooking done beforehand so you can just totally relax on Shabbat and have none of that stuff to deal with, I mean, that's okay. But, get, like, having all your meals cooked for two days, especially if you have a big family, that's tough. So you just kind of see the Father's kindness here, eh? He realizes on a practical level that can be tough. So he said, you know, on the festival Sabbaths, you can, you can get your food ready that day. But it's interesting, too, because that teaches us that apparently the Father thought it wasn't such a great idea to do your cooking on Shabbat. It's not a great idea to cook on Shabbat or to do your food prep. It's better to do that stuff before Shabbat, and then you can have the whole day just to focus on Him. It's a very spiritually romantic thing. Um, let's look at the next one. Chap uh, uh, the ninth, ninth area of action is in chapters, chapter 12, verse 15, 12, 18, 12, 19, and 13, 7. He says it four times. So I guess maybe he said, says this multiple times for a reason. He says, uh, Get the leaven out of your house on the first day of unleavened bread, and keep all the leaven products out of your personal borders until the end of the festival. And of course, that also includes like not eating leaven stuff. I guess it wouldn't make sense to clean all the leaven out of your house and then let leaven into your own personal temple. Okay? And again, I'm just talking about this stuff on a practical level. But when you do this stuff, you begin to like, God opens your eyes in massive Holy Spirit revelation, and you're like, wow, this is a picture of something about the new covenant. Or this is an area where God is showing me He wants to maybe take some leaven out of my life in some area. You know, I'm just talking on a really practical level here, but there's some deep spiritual things. Jesus talked about leavening as well. He sure did. Yeah. And so did Paul. It's, it's all through the New Testament. And then, uh, and then number 10, correlatively, he says in 12.15, 12.18, and 13.6, eat unleavened bread during each of the seven days of the festival. This is fun. It's really fun to take a piece of unleavened bread for every day of the festival and pray. And be like, Father, I just want you to clean all the old stuff out of my life. I, I, I just invite you to, to bring that new unleavened uh, power of your spirit into my life. You know, I, you know, you can pray whatever the Spirit's leading you. And uh, it's like a time of refocusing. And it's kind of cool that we get to do practical things like this because we have a Father who loves us. I like that. And also because Messiah did it. Okay, uh, that was Passover. There are two other little bundles of commandments in here. And this is, this is notable because sometimes we we're tempted to look at the Old Testament and look at the Torah as legalism or bondage. And this is a great parsha that illustrates that such is not the case. God doesn't start giving his people commandments until he sets them free from Egypt. As soon as God sets his people free and starts bringing them out of Egypt, he says, okay, you're not under Pharaoh's thumb anymore. I have a new way for you to live. Here's some of the details. All right? And that's still the way it is today. Uh, Passover is an example of that. It's all about freedom. Um, another two are chapter 12, verse 2, is the very first one of this whole series of commandments, and it's about God's calendar. 
It's like, okay guys, you're not working for Pharaoh anymore. I'm setting the schedule now. Here's my calendar. Here's, how, here's the first month of the year for you. I want you to start having the first month of the year in the spring at a specific time to remember the exodus from Egypt. That's only something that a free nation does. Uh, specifically, it's about when the f first month is to be counted. That's called the science of intercalation. The science of intercalation is only for free people. Next Rosh Chodesh, we're going to pick up uh, that theme of the biblical calendar and some of the technicalities of it. Um, I'm gonna, on a side note, I'm going to share with you something. Originally, the biblical calendar just had numbers attached to the month. You know, month one, month two, month three. We are in which month right now? Bonus points for this. Hmm? 11, that's correct. We're in month 11 on the biblical calendar. We just had like a biblical new month celebration last Sunday. Now, when the Jewish people went to Babylon, they picked up some bad stuff, some stuff that wasn't scriptural, some stuff that I think even bordered on like replacing God's commandments with human traditions. And I, I personally think that this thing with the calendar is an example of that. The names for the months on the biblical calendar in the Jewish world today are names that came from Babylon, and they weren't the original ones, like Nisan, Iyar. Even like month four is called Tammuz. That's a pagan god. How in the world did like that happen? That's not cool. So I just want to point that out because, you know, whether we come from a Jewish background or a Christian background, God is going to show us areas in our lives where our traditions have replaced the authority of His Word and His commandments in our lives. The third little bundle of commandments is about redeeming the firstborn son. Chapter 13, verses 11 to 16. In Hebrew, it's called Pidyon Haben. And uh, there's actually a page in here in the Jewish prayer book, the Sidur, uh, which is a book that's very dear to my heart. And uh, if you want to really understand the Jewish soul and worldview, read the Sidur, and you will. But there's a powerful ceremony in there about the redemption of the firstborn son. And uh, it has some profound prayers. I mean, I am really looking forward to having my first boy, because I'm going to do the Pidyon Haben, the redemption of the firstborn son. And it's going to be a time to pray for him, to uh, pray that he will experience the redemption of Messiah in his life, all kinds of uh, all kinds of things like that. Okay, I'm just going to touch on a couple other themes that pop up in this parsha, and we will wrap. Uh, in last week's parsha, we learned where Yahweh said, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is my name forever. This is my memorial to all generations. We learned that He's a generational God. We learned that He is a God of families which is a big realization, I think, especially in our current Western culture. Because to be generational, to be cross-generational, is counterculture. And to be really family-oriented, to have a high value for family life, is also very countercultural. But that's what God is about. God is countercultural. In this, uh, this parasha, we learn also that He doesn't just save individuals, He saves families. Did you notice that? You don't just take the blood on an individual basis and put it on your head or put it on the doorposts to your bedroom, do you? He says, take the blood, put it on the doorposts of your home. Put it over where your family lives. And there's a deep lesson there. The lesson is, God's redemption is powerful, not just to redeem individuals, but to redeem families where there is a generational gaps, God's salvation comes to bring generations back together, to bring understanding. 
where there's family dysfunction and hurt and, uh, and deep pain and uh, the kind of things that most people are embarrassed about that, but that I think we all have experienced in family life to some degree. Yeshua is the answer. His blood is powerful. He wants to come in and redeem our family lives. And because our Western society predominantly comes from a Greek mindset, we don't get this. We often think that our spiritual lives are when we go to church on Sunday or we go to synagogue on Saturday or whatever. But the core of our spiritual lives begins in our heart and in our personal relationship with God. But the next element of it, and perhaps even the greater element, is our family life. The, the, the core of our spirituality should be in our family life on a daily basis. If we pray when we go to church or, we, or synagogue or if we uh, only read the word like when we come here on Shabbat, then we are missing God's salvation because God wants us as families and, you know, with our parents, our brothers and sisters, our children, with our spouses. He wants to like just come and bring life there and, and have us read the word together regularly and pray together. And I, he's doing that. And it excites me. And that is just something I, I, I really felt like he wanted me to say in faith because he's bringing that into our lives. And he's, he, he's going to visit Prince Albert to a greater degree with that kind of redemption that, that saves families and, and redeems, redeems home life and uh, makes, it, makes it about him. Uh, chapter 10, verse 9, in that regard, was powerful. And... Actually, Lisa, it's really cool you're here today because I know that you're involved in youth ministry. Chapter 10, verse 9, Pharaoh is beginning to negotiate with Moses. He's saying, okay, Moses, like, you can go, but not the whole family. Just the males. Just your adult men. You guys go, worship your God, come back, and, uh, you know, that'll be all right. And Moses said, no, we are going to go with our youth. Is the first thing he said. Chapter 10, verse 9, Pharaoh, we're going as families, and our youth are coming with us. And I have a heart for that. To go where we're going as a people of God, as a body of Messiah, with our youth. I have a real heart for that. So uh, as, we, as we grow as a congregation, we're going we're gonna to keep that in mind. <laughs> this is something I actually learned from Colin. It's a really cool insight about that also. Chapter 10, verse 26. Moses says that when we leave Egypt, Pharaoh, we're not even going to leave a hoof behind. Would you say hoof or hoof? How do you guys say it? Just Okay. I think I've been hanging out with Americans lately. Americans would say hoof, right? We say hoof, right? Yeah. Well, thank you guys. I was starting to go down the wrong track there. He said, so we're not even going to leave a hoof behind. <laughs> and it's just, and the concept there is reiterated in chapter 11, verse 1. And, and uh, it's where Elohim says to Moshe, when Pharaoh sends you out, he's going to send you out. He's going to totally send you out. It's going to be a complete salvation. There's going to be nothing left. And I think it's probably the same concept in the army. We leave no man behind. When we accomplish our mission, when we finish the combat, we, we leave none of our people behind. We all finish it and we all go out together. Okay, last thought with that. This is the prophetic element that I just have to say. Chapter 10, verse 26. This is my favorite verse in the Parsha, by the way. Chapter 10, verse 26. Moses says to Pharaoh, Until we arrive there, we ourselves don't know with what will serve Yahweh. Why did he say that? Pharaoh, uh, until we arrive there, wherever there is, we don't even know what Yahweh is going to require of us in worship, what we're going to do. 
I, I personally believe that that was put there as a picture of the future. Uh, Revelation chapter 12 talks about a woman who is obviously the people of Israel, and that doesn't just mean physical Jews. I believe it means the whole redeemed body of Messiah. But she flees into the wilderness for a period of uh, around three and a half years. And, you know, she's supernaturally protected and nourished and all this. And I, I, I personally think that's a great tribulation scenario. Um, I would like to be there in that group of people. And I think chapter 10, verse 26 is a picture of the deeper element of that. Moses is saying, until we arrive there, we don't know with what we're going to serve him. I get the impression that if you have a group of people who are supernaturally protected for three and a half years, who are taken care of on a physical level, their immediate needs like food and stuff, they're going to have a lot of time on their hands. What are they going to do? Well, if it's God who brought them there, if he just showed himself powerful on their behalf and revealed himself gloriously, maybe there's going to be a lot of worship going on. Maybe it'll be worship on a level that we have no idea about. And that's something that I personally really hope to experience. On a, on a broader level, I think this is just a very relevant verse about the future. Moses is saying, you know, with whatever God's going to do with us, we don't know exactly what he's going to do with us until we get there. That's true of end-of-day stuff. Our job isn't to figure it all out. Like Mark Ogden was saying this last Sunday, you know, yeah, there's a place for studying the Word and trying to figure out how things are going to play out, but our job is just to be faithful to Him today and love Him with all our hearts and the people in our lives and do the mitzvot that He's given us. And He'll notify us when these events happen. Um, in chapter 12, verse 37, it says the first place they, they arrived at when they went out of Egypt was Sukkot. Sukkot is a biblical festival. It has some real end-of-days elements to it also, and I'm not even going to explain them all because we're going to celebrate Sukkot uh, in next fall, and we'll talk about all that stuff then, and maybe before then too. So thanks for tracking with me. This parsha is so rich, and I just... I really enjoy like just sitting down with you guys and just delving into it together and uh, discovering it. <laughs> Shalom, I'm Izzy Avraham, and thank you for joining me for this talk. I delivered these messages live during the years I was leading a congregation. They're now hosted by my Hebrew school, Holy Language Institute, at holylanguage.com. If you're interested in the talks I've done since then, or if you'd just like to say thank you for these teachings, become a member at holylanguage.com.